0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 20% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT9. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive Magazine, Congressional Dish, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, All In with Chris Hayes, Comedian Lee Camp, Moyers & Company, Counterspin, Politics and Reality Radio, and The Young Turks. And a quick spoiler alert, I'm against bombing Syria.
1: John Kerry isn't exactly inspiring confidence as Secretary of State. He's become the biggest cheerleader for war against Syria. At the Senate hearings this week, he wanted to even rule out putting boots on the ground in Syria, even though President Obama had assured us on Saturday that this wouldn't happen. Asked directly about it. Here's what Kerry had to say if chemical weapons were at risk of falling into the hands of Al Qaeda types in Syria He said I don't want to take off the table an option that might or might not be available to a president of the United States To secure our country he then backtracked and tried to slam the door shut on putting us ground troops there But if you were listening you had to conclude that this door is still kind of open and anyway Why are we taking action that might help Al Qaeda types who are opposed to Assad? Once more, a majority of the American public doesn't want war. And once more, the political class is intent on dragging us into it. To be sure, if it's proven that Assad used chemical weapons, that would be a war crime. But remember, at the Nuremberg Trials, Justice Robert Jackson said the greatest war crime of all was waging an aggressive war. And that's what John Kerry and Barack Obama seem prepared to commit unless we organize and stop them. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
2: in europe everything stopped you know the british tony blair got up there and made his case to the the house of commons and everything stopped we didn't go to class you could watch it in bars um in europe they they really give it gave a damn and This part of the debate gave me major flashbacks to that day, being down in the basement of my school with my teachers and my fellow classmates and watching that debate for hours and hours and hours while they say, let the U.N. finish doing their job. And listen to this from today. It's it sounds exactly the same.
3: First. And this is where the Prime Minister and I now agree. We must let the UN weapons inspectors do their work and let them report to the Security Council. Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General, said yesterday about the weapons inspectors, and I quote, let them conclude their work for four days, and then we will have to analyse scientifically with experts, and then we will have to report to the Security Council for action. So the weapons inspectors are in the midst of their work and will be reporting in the coming days. That is why today could not have been the day when the House was asked to decide on military action. Yeah. For, for this, for this house, for, for this house, for this house, it is surely a basic point. Evidence should precede decision, not decision precede evidence.
2: yeah, yeah. Oh um, God, British Parliament is so much cooler than Congress, isn't it? But anyway, so what the British want to do is they want to have the UN have the world because, okay, the UN, the UN started after our world wars and it was a way for the major powers of the world to come together and decide when we're going to act as a world community against someone who's gone nutty. Um, there's a problem though with this specific instance when it comes to Sierra, which is that Russia has a veto on the UN, and they're down with Syria. So being an LA, they're not going to approve, by all accounts, they're not going to approve this attack on Syria. So this is the British plan, and presumably our plan, too, on how they're going to justify and make it legal, even if Russia gives a veto to the resolution that would authorize an attack.
4: Look, the very best route to follow is to have a Chapter 7 resolution, take it to the UN Security Council, have it passed, and then think about taking action. That is the path we followed with Libya. Now, this is a very... I want to make this point. This is very important. It cannot be the case that that is the only way to have a legal basis for action. And we should consider for a moment what the consequences would be if that were the case. You could have a situation in a country where its government was literally annihilating half the people in that country. But because of one veto on the Security Council, you would be hampered from taking any action. Now I can't think of any member in any party of this House who would want to sign up to that. And that's why it's important. We do have the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, which is set out in the Attorney General's excellent legal advice
2: big problem here by even being a part of the UN we did sign up for that we did say that Russia gets a vote here but notice that they said that they're going to make this a humanitarian mission and therefore they won't really need the UN that's how they're going to try and get around international law so the debate kind of went along those lines for hours it was like two or three hours but in the, there was a fascinating exchange that happened a couple hours into this debate where they were talking about what the repercussions could be of this attack. Now, it's, it's funny because when you hear the Obama administration talk, they, they've been very clear in saying that they're not trying to have regime change like they did in Iraq. When we went into Iraq, we were trying to get rid of Saddam, okay? And Obama has said in August of 2011 that Assad has got to go, but he said that is not going to be the goal here. The goal is to have targeted strikes that are going to take out certain things and basically teach him a lesson for using chemical weapons. But there might be repercussions to that. So I'm going to play you a long clip here. This is the most fascinating five minutes of this debate but is also going to be something that I'm going to remember 20 years from now um, in regards to our American media in the run-up to yet another war because of what happened as I was listening to this debate. So, um, yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy the insanity.
3: My two questions are, is it proven that Assad did it beyond reasonable doubt? And secondly, even if he or his regime did it, is a military strike sensible? Now, first of all, on the question of whether or not he did it, the UN inspectors aren't going to tell us anything about that, as I understand it. All they're going to do is going to tell us whether or not a a, a sarin gas attack took place. So we can't look to them for pointing the finger as to who did it. The JIC have been cited, and we can all read the summary, and the summary is not conclusive. The summary, in fact, says that the JIC are baffled as to find a motive for Assad having done this, and well they might be, because if he did do it, and maybe he did, if he did do it, it was the height of irrationality for him to do the one thing that might get the West intervening against him. Would well, my honourable friend give way? Yes, of I think there is a clear motive for him to have done this. Uh, He's been using chemical weapons on a number of occasions, five previous occasions, testing the West to see if they were going to respond. He's lost control of Aleppo airport. Homs is still under rebel control. The rebels are fighting in the suburbs of Damascus. He's getting desperate. That's why he used it. There is no question... Uh, that there's any circumstantial
5: evidence that points to anyone
3: else. I respect my honourable friend's opinions on this and all other related matters, but nevertheless, that would make more sense if he actually was willing to acknowledge that he'd been testing the water rather than vehemently denying that he did it. I think it's just as likely, I'm not going to give way when I'm still answering a previous question, <laughs> it's just as likely that uh, if the regime were responsible in some way, it might have been done by some uh, part of the regime, unauthorised by another part of the regime. And indeed, there, this leads me to the question of contradictory evidence, because according to the leaked reports, on the one hand we're getting stories that this was ordered by Assad's brother in a t- retaliation for an attempt on the, on the life of the leadership, an assassination attempt that failed. On the other hand, we're saying that there's intercept evidence that in fact... Uh, It may have been the result of somebody unauthorised doing this because there was a telephone conversation where somebody was saying, why on earth did you do this? And there was a sort of panicked reaction to unauthorised release of poison gas. The point about all this is that it is very far from certain uh, that the evidence stacks up. And indeed, we have got the Intelligence and Security Committee and I can see no reason whatsoever that the ISC, which is cleared for classification well up to the sort of material that the JIC has been looking at and that the Prime Minister has seen and I don't see why those of us who have been cleared for that sort of access should not have that sort of access but I now move on to the second question and the second question is this let's suppose that Assad did it is it then sensible to reply with military action we've heard the arguments about red lines and we've heard the arguments about the importance and the sacrosanct taboo that we must stand up for But if it is the case that my honourable friend uh, is correct and that the Assad government actually did do this irrational thing, then that shows that the Assad government is behaving very irrationally indeed. And one of the things that really does bother me greatly is that it is now being suggested, and I say this as someone generally supportive of Israel, that Israeli intelligence may be the source of the uh, evidence that the Assad government did it. If Assad is behaving irrationally, if Assad is so desperate, what is to prevent Assad if he is attacked militarily by us on the perceived basis of intelligence supplied by Israel from retaliating with a chemical attack against Israel? What then will Israel do? Israel will retaliate in turn. What then will America do? What then will Iran do? What then will Russia do? I started off, Mr. Speaker, by making a reference to the First World War. And next year, we are going to be commemorating the uh, centenary of the events of August 1914. And those events have a worrying parallel because you had a series of actions and reactions which drew in, in an escalating fashion, one country after another. Nobody thought that the assassination of an obscure Archduke would lead to a world conflagration. This, as Admiral Lord West has said, is a powder keg and we should not be lobbing weapons into the heart of such combustible material.
6: So we're going to break away from this British House of Commons debate on Syria at this point. We expect this debate to continue for several hours with possible votes later today. Taking a look at Twitter, Democratic
7: Congressman Alan Grayson.
2: Yes, that was C-SPAN 2, cutting away from their coverage at the peak of the debate, at the point where the British House of Commons was finally cutting through the bullshit and actually having a debate about the stuff that matters, the the implications of an attack might have on the entire world, they cut away to tell us about congressional tweets. And then after they spent about 10 minutes telling us about the tweets, what did they deem to be more important than the live footage from the British House of Commons debating a matter of war? An interview with the Cheney family as they are promoting their book.
4: Put on the tally
1: To the BBC To the BBC Yeah, yeah, yeah BBC One BBC Two BBC Three BBC Four BBC Five BBC Six BBC Seven BBC Heaven Mrs.
3: William Make me take
8: We're in a situation in Syria where we don't like the current regime and we don't like the alternative regime either. So what are these cruise missiles going to do? Well, two things that were very interesting. Um, The idea of the bombs or the cruise missiles is fascinating to me because, as we said earlier, It's more of a statement, right? You get all of the downside and none of the upside because no one thinks that cruise missiles are going to be a game changer. And even if they were a game changer, do you really want the rebels taking control of the country? And if the goal is to protect innocent people in Syria, do we really think that the insurgency all of a sudden winning means that persecutions are going to stop? Which brings me to this idea of you know, involving ourselves in humanitarian disasters. Some of the people on Twitter who were um, talking to me and some of the people emailing, I told you, I, I really can't get back to the emails anymore. I, I do read most of them. It's, its you know, emails, many of you business people know, emails a tough tool nowadays. It, 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 you could spend all your time answering email or you could spend your time on your business. So, I mean, that's kind of where things have gone now. Um, but I do read uh, some of them and then the Twitter account has become useful for, for that too. Um, but many of you were saying, Dan, you know, how can we look away from the humanitarian crisis? And I remember so well living through the situation in the former Yugoslavia when it tore itself apart in the early 1990s. Uh, if you were living at the time and conscious and, you know, watching the news, Perhaps you remember, especially here in the United States, I can't speak for any place else in the world, but there was such a feeling of anger and powerlessness um, when the situation in the former Yugoslavia turned genocidal, I don't think is too strong of a word, that one could easily find oneself a proponent of crusading expeditions to save people. Once again, it becomes like that hardcore history episode we did. I mean, you know, you look at when they put... The people in virtual concentration camps in the former Yugoslavia, and I remember Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine had on their cover a starving Bosnian, you know, I mean, ribs showing, hip bone, obviously starving, behind a concentration camp fence, and you just look and you go, well, shades of the Holocaust. Are we really gonna stand by and let this happen? And then Srebrenica happened and the massacres and all these, I mean, you practically wanna go volunteer yourself for some sort of liberty legion where you can go and save these people. But this becomes a problem in and of itself. There's an interesting article uh, written by uh, Simon Jenkins from The Guardian in Britain where um, it's entitled Syria. It takes more courage to say there's nothing outsiders can do. And it's intended to combat that sort of knee-jerk emotionalism where we just feel like here's somebody who needs help. And we're the ones capable of providing it, so we should. I remember when um the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, came out. And there was an interest. I know this is an interesting aside, I hope. um There was an interesting conversation about how it was that Batman, a quintessential American comic book character, finally required non-americans to make a movie that captured the essence of the character really for the first time ever the right way and there were you may not remember there was quite a bit of talk though about how interesting it was you know here we have these british people and these australians involved and all these other people who are not americans and yet they nail the portrayal down when american filmmakers and american script writers and all these people were unable to and why that was and one of the stars of the movie michael caine he not an American himself, had a fascinating line about why it might be that foreigners were able to grasp the character better than Americans. And, you know, this has to do with the way the Batman character was more a metaphor for the United States as a whole. And Michael Caine said, the reason why the British screenwriters were able to capture the character was because Americans as a country see themselves as Superman. You know, we're coming to save the day, oh, there's a crisis, we jump into the phone booth, we rip off the shirt and boom, we rescue the girl falling off the building, you know, we defeat the bad guy and all this. But Michael Caine said, but the rest of the world doesn't see the United States as Superman. The rest of the world sees the United States as Batman. And not the Batman from the 1960s Bam Pow series, but the Batman that is the more nuanced, dark night vigilante kind of character in other words, this character that might be necessary, but no one's particularly happy with the way you know, he comports himself or carries out his business. The rest of the world, Kane says, sees the United States as the Dark night. And when you see all these people suffering in a place like Syria, you think, well, who can come and save the day? And the United States thinks of itself as Superman. The rest of the world is Batman. And who has the capability? And that's what some of these people were saying is, Dan, listen... You know, can the United States really just stand by when this is going on? I mean, if we can help, shouldn't we help? And this becomes a problem. It's a sort of a catch-22 with our military, because you hear people say that all the time. We're the ones who have the capability to help. Therefore, there's a responsibility to do that. So here's my question. How long are you required to carry out that role until you no longer can? Does the responsibility exist until you've worn your military down to such a level that it's no longer capable so that you can't say anymore, well, the U.S. is the only country capable of intervening? Well, not anymore. We intervened 10,000 times and now it's worn down to the nub, so we no longer have to intervene. Do you have to maintain that military, then, to keep it to levels where it can do its job when its job is morphed into intervening because it's the only country that's capable of doing so? I mean, it's it's this, it's this vicious cycle where the military spending that we have now is perpetuated because of things that the military needs to do that it only needs to do because we're the only ones with the military big enough to do them. I mean, that's an endless loop there, right? A feedback loop. But Jenkins had an interesting line in that Guardian piece. He said, um, quote, from the middle of the piece, quote, The Syrian civil war is awful to witness, but not exceptional. The Lebanese civil war next door claimed 120,000 lives and created millions of refugees. The Iraq war, a similar sectarian conflict, claimed even more lives and continues to do so. Sometimes, he writes, it takes courage to conclude of foreign conflicts that we can only do more harm than good by meddling in them. But the idea that not meddling constitutes quote, end quote, allowing them to continue is the short route to madness. He says, quote, the logic of most civil wars is that they either end when the combatants fight each other to exhaustion or when some neighboring power invades and quashes them. Dropping a few bombs would have been the nearest the British government got to Cameron's own charge of standing idly by. It would have been careless of outcome, half-hearted intervention, intervention light, end quote. Well, John McCain, the war hawk, who he's just one of those many, many people that needs to get voted out of office, has already slammed the administration for the pinprick idea of using cruise missiles by saying that we need to be more robust. We need to be willing to go in there and put boots on the ground if that's what's necessary to enforce this red line where we have international law out there that says you can't gash your own population. This is a weapon system that is not allowed. Let's talk about that for a quick second because, folks... The problem with international law and enforcing international law is that the United States has no damn credibility on this issue at all. Do you know why? Because like most countries in the world, we enforce international law when the violators are people we don't like. And we don't enforce international law when the violators are people we do like. You know, one of the things that people forget is that one of the reasons cited... For why we should topple Saddam Hussein in the second Gulf War was that he had used poison gas. He'd used these WMD. he had used them against his own people. What a horrific charge, right? And there's no doubt that it's true. The photographs were widely disseminated. Everyone knew about this. He also used poison gas on probably the largest scale since the First World War in the uh, 1980s in the Iran-Iraq War. Here's the problem, though, with this whole international law question. When Saddam Hussein used gas in the Iran-Iraq war, right, this violation of international law that we're so mad at Syria for, now this red line, he was doing it with our support. The positions of the Iranians that he was gassing were positions that we told him about by handing him satellite surveillance data, showing him the specific tank Positions, You know, opposite the Iraqi lines. We knew he was going to use gas. We knew he used gas. We had Donald Rumsfeld go shake his hand right at the time he's using gas. And some people even insinuate that some of the gas he used was made by, you know, elements that were provided to him by, you know, U.S. companies. All this was known. Why didn't we hit him then? Because we approved of what he did. He was fighting someone we consider to be an enemy, Iran. So if he violated international law while fighting our enemy, no big deal. When did we care? Oh, well, we want to topple that regime. We drag up those you know, accounts where he used poison gas, and now we're going to enforce the rule. Listen, whatever you think about the United Nations, the United States is happy to enforce U.S. resolutions when we like what the U.N. resolutions say. We're trying to enforce supposedly U.N. resolutions uh, in both Gulf wars. But when we don't like what the U.N. resolutions say, we don't do a thing. There are some pretty prominent U.N. resolutions that go after Israel. We don't touch those with a 10 foot pole. I'm not arguing whether or not those resolutions are good things or bad things or tainted or not. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that if you're not consistent about enforcing these red lines, then they're not really red lines, are they? They're just cassius belly to go you know, use as a, another stipulation in any list of grievances that allow you to go to war with somebody or allow you to strike somebody or intervene in a conflict, right?
4: I see problems down the line.
0: By now, you've likely heard me tell you about Squarespace Timer 2. They're a fantastic platform for building websites that's found that great intersection of power and simplicity, so anyone can use it to make great-looking sites. I've told you about their beautiful templates and how they automatically adjust to the devices they're being displayed on. I've mentioned their 24-hour support team and built-in merchandising tools. But now I want to hear from you. If you run a website using Squarespace, then send me an email or, better yet, call into the show's voicemail line at 202 999 3991 and tell me about it for a chance to have it promoted on the show. In the meantime, everyone can try out Squarespace for free with their free trial. You don't even need a credit card. Then when you do sign up, you can use the special offer code LEFT9. That's L-E-F-T and the number 9. And for September, it's even more special because that offer code usually gets you 10% off, but for September only, it gets you 20% off your purchase. And with Squarespace, you can go month to month, so that'll get you 20% off one month, or if you pay for the full year, you get 20 percent off the entire year so again that offer code is left nine to get 20 percent off your purchase when you create your own space at squarespace.com now that the president has gone to congress
9: for authorization of a military strike in syria members of both houses can no longer get away with asking questions and second guessing they have to declare where they stand and vote on it so here's where i stand I don't think we should send missiles into Syria. If I was in Congress, I'd vote against it, and I think it's a grave mistake that will make a bad situation worse. Before I explain my reasoning, let me say, I don't think that people who disagree with me are contemptible scoundrels and warmongers. My own father, an ex-Jesuit community organizer and a true moral beacon in my life, thinks we should intervene. And that counts for a lot in my book. That said, here's why I think a military strike like the one being proposed is a bad idea. First of all, there's always a likelihood we will kill innocent people. That's a risk you run with any kind of military engagement, particularly aerial bombardment. Second, while I think the general idea of enforcing the international norm against the deployment of chemical weapons is a laudable goal, I am deeply skeptical this kind of strike will do that. If Assad did in fact use chemical weapons, and you'll excuse me if the experience of Iraq makes me a wee bit reluctant to definitively state he did based solely on U.S. intelligence, but again... If Assad, as the evidence would seem to suggest, did use these weapons, then he likely did so as a way of basically burning the bridge that could have let him retreat. In other words, he sent a message to supporters that the only way out is through, that he will fight to the end, and all the people included in his coalition of support, Syrian Christians, Alawites, members of the military, and business elite, they are in the same bunker with him. If the rebels win, the family members of the people Assad gassed will not look kindly on his supporters. Given the fact that Assad's fighting literally for his life, I'm not quite sure a targeted punitive strike, like the one being proposed, will have that much of an effect. It may slightly alter the calculation of deploying such weapons again. But even if it does, if Assad thinks he has to use chemical weapons to win, or lose and find himself drawn and quartered, guess what he's going to do? Also, imagine the quagmire the U.S. will find itself in if Assad does go ahead and use chemical weapons after we have punished him for doing so. Clearly, our red line will have to be enforced by even more punitive measures. And that way lies full entanglement in a bloody, brutal civil war. Third, there's a good chance an American military strike will make the situation worse. As MIDI scholar Juan Cole argues, the only hope there is of any kind of eventual negotiated settlement in Syria is if both sides conclude they're stuck at a stalemate and grow weary of the bloodshed. But U.S. intervention on the side of rebels will act as a signal that rebels should keep fighting with the possibility of future intervention that might be decisive on their part and get rid of whatever incentive they might have to go to the negotiating table. Of course, we should be honest here. Bashar Assad is a maniacal butcher, and what he's done is unspeakable. At the same time, many, though certainly far from all, fighting against him are jihadis who have also committed atrocities. And I've heard people I'm quite allied with ideologically talk about a political resolution to this war or a diplomatic solution. I sometimes get the nagging sense that's just a phrase those of us on the left use to assuage our conscience so we can point towards a solution to this bloodshed and misery that doesn't involve missiles. But maybe there isn't a political or diplomatic solution. I don't think there was ever really a political solution to our own civil war here in the U.S., which didn't feature any chemical weapons but left 600,000 dead and rotting in blood-soaked fields. If there had been a political solution, Lincoln would have loved to find it. But ultimately, history's verdict is that the side of the war defending bondage and evil had to be vanquished definitively. And that may be the case here in Syria, in which case those of us who oppose military intervention, both for practical reasons and on principle, need to have the moral courage to stare into the gaping maw of horror that is the Syrian civil war and the Assad regime and the murder of hundreds of innocent children and say, we can't make this situation better. We just can't. Except that, too, is not quite right. There are things we can do. If our primary concern here is alleviating the misery of the Syrian people, two million of whom have been turned into refugees, there are many concrete things we can do that don't involve missiles. The cost of a single Tomahawk missile is estimated to cost over 600000 to $1.4 million. Reports have indicated a strike could use up to 200 of them. That's anywhere from $120 million to $280 million. You could write a check tomorrow from the Treasury to the U.N. High Commission on Refugees in that amount to get much-needed supplies to the refugee camps. Right now, you can give money at the URL donate.unhcr.org forward slash Syria. We as a country could also do what Sweden, now hosting President Obama, has announced they're doing to help, offer asylum to Syrian refugees. Yesterday, Sweden became the first European country to announce they will give permanent residence status to all Syrian refugees who apply and their families. Or, we could offer Syrians the same streamlined immigration process the Cubans now enjoy. And say what you will about Fidel Castro, he sure as hell has never gassed 1,400 of his own people. Every once in a great while, a war is waged by us or by others that has a positive outcome for human flourishing. But the blunt fact is that the majority of wars we as a nation have entered into, we should not have. This is one of them. Let's not make the same mistake again.
3: The boys are cocking up their guns. Tell us, General, is it party
10: time?
1: If it is, can we all come? Don't think that we don't know. Don't think that we're not trying.
11: Don't think we move too slow.
3: It's noise after crying.
1: It's a mistake. It's a
11: mistake. This is your moment of clarity from LeadCamp.net. If someone told you they were going to rob seven banks, and he listed which ones, he was like, this one, this one, this one, etc. Then over the coming years, he did indeed rob most of those banks. And then one day, you're walking with him past one of the few banks he hasn't robbed, and he goes, you and I have to rob this bank. Not to steal the money, but because the money is actually a bomb that's made to look like money, and so we have to grab it and bring it back to my place. Not to steal the money, just to help the people that are going to die from the the bomb. That's, That's why we have to do it. Would you believe him? Well, that's the problem with the U.S. government telling us it's now time to bomb the shit out of Syria. And here's the thing. It's not that I know what happened with chemical weapons in Syria, and it's not that I think President Assad is a lovely chap who enjoys cucumber sandwiches and patting little bunny rabbits on the back of their heads. It's simply that General Wesley Clark told us that the White House and the Pentagon have had ongoing plans to invade or otherwise dismantle seven countries. Here's a clip from the video.
5: I just got this memo from the Secretary of Defense's office that says we're going to attack and destroy the governments in in seven countries in five years. We're going to start with Iraq and then we're going to move to Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. I couldn't believe it would really be true, but that's actually what happened.
11: That's That's kind of damning, right? And, and, and something tells me Mr. Wesley Clark wouldn't have been so forthcoming if he had won his bid for the presidency a few years back. The other reason I'm opposed to jumping on board the old idea of bombing to save the day is because I can't picture a time we've ever done that in the past 60 years. Do we ever just bomb to save the day in a place that doesn't have some major oil interest? It's like a lifeguard who says he's there to save people's lives, but then he just ends up doing mouth-to-mouth on all the hot chicks, whether they need it or not. Meanwhile, they are hairy, obese men drowning left and right. Whole piles of ugly dudes lost to the deadly activity of amateur swimming. And at some point, you gotta be like, I don't think that lifeguard is really here to save the day. And I don't think bombing Syria has anything to do with saving people. Neither does former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, General Wesley Clark.
5: It was a pretty stunning thing. You mean, the purpose of the military is to, to, to start wars and change governments. It's not to sort of deter conflict. We're going to invade countries. And, I, 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 you know, my mind was spinning.
11: Years ago, a man named L. Ron Hubbard said the real way to make a million dollars is to start a religion. He then went on to start a religion. He founded Scientology, which believes Tom Cruise is the Virgin Mary and Will Smith is the burning bush. But L. Ron Hubbard didn't claim he started the religion for money. He claimed he did it because it's the true religion. Do you believe him? I should f- hope not. So why do we believe the White House and Congress when they say we now need to go to war with Syria to save the day? Believing that makes Scientology seem downright sensible. It's our ability to not go to war that defines us as men and women of moral principle. Going to war is easy. It's what we do. It's what we train for. It's what we spend most of our money on here in America. It's our default position. Like weighted dice landing on seven. Like Simon Call or Jamie Dimon sucking the devil. And what do you know? We landed on war again. What are the odds? You see, if you're a rageaholic and you spend all day, every day figuring out how to be a better fighter, then not fighting is a huge achievement. This is why
10: Bill Moyers is away this week, and I am pleased to be sitting in for him. Our subject is Syria. What began there two and a half years ago as part of the Arab Spring has turned into an all-out civil war. Now has come the shocking evidence of poison gas attacks, a fatal escalation that has led President Obama to ask Congress to authorize the limited use of military force. And if we take action, where and when does it stop? Historian and analyst Andrew Basevich is here asking those questions. A graduate of West Point and a Vietnam veteran, he served the military for 23 years before becoming a professor at Boston University. His books include The Limits of Power and Washington Rules. His latest, Breach of Trust. Andrew Basevich, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, I'm pleased to have this chance to chat with you for a lot of reasons. One, I I don't know who else has more cred than you. What would a 23-year graduate of West Point offer us now regarding the dilemma in which Obama finds himself regarding Syria?
12: Well, I mean, if I could have five minutes of the President's time, I'd say, Mr. President, the, the issue really is not Syria. I mean, you're being told that it's Syria. You're being told you have to do something about Syria, that you have to make a decision about Syria, that, that somehow your credibility is on the line. But I'd say, Mr. President, that's not true. The issue really here is whether or not an, an effort over the course of several decades, dating back to the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine in 1980, an effort that extends over several decades to employ American power, military power, overt Covert military power exercised through proxies, an effort to use military power to somehow stabilize or fix or liberate or transform the greater Middle East hasn't worked. I mean, if you think back to 1980 and just sort of tick off the number of military enterprises that we have been engaged in that part of the world, large and small, you know, Beirut, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, Yemen, uh, Somalia, uh, and on and on, and ask yourself what have we got done? What have we achieved? Is the region becoming more stable? Is it becoming more democratic? Uh, Are we enhancing America's standing in the eyes of the people of the Islamic world? The answers are no, no, and no. So why, Mr. President? Do you think that that, that uh, initiating yet another war, because if we bomb Syria, it's a war, why do you think that initiating yet another war in this protracted enterprise is going to produce a different outcome? Wouldn't it be perhaps wise to ask ourselves if this militarized approach to the region maybe is a fool's errand? Maybe it's, Maybe it's fundamentally misguided. Maybe the questions are not tactical and operational, but strategic and political. You know, I I have to say I'm just struck by the fact that Secretary of State Kerry has become the leading proponent uh, for war. That's our, our Secretary of State's job. He threw, his medals. he threw his medals back. Well, that's why it's doubly ironic that the Secretary of State is the war promoter and that our Secretary of State happens to be a guy who came into politics basically advertising himself as the guy who, because Understand of his war. Vietnam experiences, understands war, understands the lessons of Vietnam, and is therefore going to prevent us from doing dumb things. On the contrary, he's, he's, he's the lead cheerleader to go do another dumb thing.
10: President Obama would say to you, these are children being, being grossly and painfully killed. How and can you watch these videos with the foam coming out of the nostrils and we've got to
12: do something? Well, the attack is a heinous act. Uh, now, does the fact that they were killed with chemicals make it more heinous than if they were killed with conventional munitions? I'm not persuaded. I mean, I think the issue, one of the, one of the issues here, to the extent that moral considerations drive U.S. policy, and I would say, as a practical matter, they don't, but it, let's pretend that they do. Uh, to the extent that moral considerations drive U.S. policy, there's a couple of questions to ask. One would be, why here and not someplace else? And the other question would be, well, if our concerns are humanitarian, why why is waging war the best means to advance a humanitarian agenda? If, if indeed, U.S. policy is informed by concern for the people of Syria, let's just pretend that's the case, even though I don't think it is. If it's informed by concern for the people of Syria, why is... uh, peppering Damascus with cruise missiles the best way to demonstrate that concern. I mean, a little bit of creative statesmanship, it seems to me, might say that there are other things we could do that would actually benefit the people of Syria who are suffering greatly, who are fleeing their country into hundreds of thousands, who who are living in wretched refugee camps. Why don't we do something about that? Why wouldn't that be a, a, a better thing to do from a moral perspective? then bombing Damascus. How, how do we explain
10: media's submission to these warlike... Uh, uh, let me just give you one. Um, Nicholas Kristof of the Times. Since President Obama established a red line about chemical weapons use, his credibility has been at stake. He can't just whimper and back down. Whimper. I mean, who wants a whimperer for president? And there's an awful lot of macho in this. And by the way, why can't the president just say, hey, I really shouldn't have said red line, that was a mistake, it was a moment, I'm a human, sue me. I'm rectifying that now, and I'm going to take a more.
12: Well, I I, I think one point there is that, in many respects, this crisis is being driven by domestic politics. Uh, I think the president did make a mistake. in in drawing that red line. I suspect the president actually understands he made a mistake. Uh, And then when Assad called his bluff, as it were, uh, the president finds himself in a position where, yes, he's got to do something to restore his credibility. Well, when you think about it, uh, it's not going to restore any credibility. I mean, when you think about it, is credibility worth going to war for? Uh, When you think about it, if indeed American credibility in that part of the world is kind of low right now, Is it because the president drew a red line and didn't act? Or could it be because of the folly of American wars in places like Iraq? Uh, I mean, will, will bombing Syria make the memory of Iraq go away? Well, the memory of Iraq has already gone away in the, for most Americans, but is it going to cause people in the Arab world or the, or, or the broader Islamic world to forget Iraq and all the chaos that we created? One of the conservative talking heads in the shout shows on cable said that
10: going to, if, if Obama goes to Congress, he will show weakness. I mean, it's only in the Constitution. He will show weakness if he obeys the Constitution. Everything is turned upside down here now.
12: Well, I think if, if there's one, if there's one uh, uh, iota of, uh, of good news here, I think it is that he has gone to the Congress. Now, the president didn't go to the Congress because he realized that he's a constitutional lawyer and suddenly was becoming a, a strict constructionist. He went to the Congress because he was sitting out there on his limb all by himself, even without the Brits. And decided that it was a lonely place to be. And he wanted to see if he could induce the Congress to come out, uh, come out and join him. But that said, uh, whether he intends it or not, he is setting a precedent. A precedent that says that maybe when we do attack some country, the Congress ought to be consulted. And, w- and the significance of that, I think, is three, four, five years from now, when Obama's successor has some great idea that he wants to go bomb somebody or invade somebody. Uh, I hope there will be some questions asked that will say, hey, wait a second, Mr. President. Back in 2013, before Obama acted, he thought he needed to ask the Congress, why, why doesn't that apply to you? So I think that's the one little bit of good news out of this yeah, uh, circumstance. Except Obama made the point
10: emphatically that I don't need your approval. I can go he did. alone anyway. Yeah, He did we are the only country with the capacity to do what we're about to do in Syria.
12: Do you believe that? There's no question that in terms of, of the capability to project power, to put ordnance on targets, to mass military power in every dimension, you know, land, sea, uh, air, uh, cyberspace, our capabilities are beyond anybody's uh, ability to, to, to match. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily yield wise policies. It doesn't even yield military victory. Again, when you, think, when you think back on the actual history, the military history of the United States in the Middle East over the past several decades, victory has been exceedingly hard to come by. We're always stronger by many measures than the adversary. But somehow or other, being strong doesn't translate into political objectives being achieved quickly or economically. What actually happens is that the projection of American power leads to unexpected complications and gets us more deeply embedded in a set of circumstances that... um, we can't handle. There are enormously deep and powerful forces of change that are have come to the surface and are transforming that part of the world. We have claimed, presidents have claimed, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and now this president have claimed that we possess the capacity to somehow direct or control these processes of change even though the truth is we don't have that capacity the truth is we are largely irrelevant to what's going on in that part of the world but if we reach out and you know use our military power to drop some missiles here and there we can we can sustain the illusion that we have some kind of relevance but we don't
8: razor's edge carrying that hurt and hatred
5: and weapons it could be a bomb or a bullet or a pen or a thought or a word or a sentence and there ain't no reason things are this way it's how they always been and they intend to stay i don't
8: know why i say the things i say but i say them anyway but love will come set me free Love will come free,
7: I do
5: believe. On August 30th, Secretary of State John Kerry presented U.S. intelligence findings that he argued justified a military strike against Syria. Two days later, he appeared on all the network Sunday talk shows. But most of the questions weren't about the case for war. Instead, the questioning was overwhelmingly concerned with Barack Obama's decision to seek congressional approval for an attack on Syria. By our count, fully 80% of the questions were about going to Congress, an action that many of the Sunday show journalists seemed to find terribly troubling. Do you think the United States has undermined its leverage in the world, its credibility? Asked Meet the Press's David Gregory. Haven't you handed Syria and Iran at least a temporary victory, sir? Asked Fox News Sunday's Chris Wallace. The only host to ask about the strength of the case for war was this week's George Stephanopoulos, who, amid seven questions about Congress, asked one about evidence, and that was, quote, You say that the evidence is clear. But President Putin of Russia is calling it utter nonsense that President Assad would authorize this kind of a chemical strike. Your response to President Putin close quote. Putting the skepticism in the mouth of a foreign leader generally antagonistic to U.S. policy is a common media technique for marginalizing a point of view. It's understandable that Kerry would be asked about the decision to go to Congress, but obsessing over it, as though the constitutionally mandated business of seeking congressional approval for war were an exotic and nearly unprecedented maneuver is disheartening, to say the least, and crowds out space for thoughtful coverage of the U.S. intelligence presentation itself.
10: We
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford ten bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay, but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
10: Oh.
7: You know, this gets to an issue that I think is just kind of baffling. I I have a piece up at BillMoyers.com titled The Irreconcilable Paradox of Calls to Strike Syria. And I point out that the justification for these strikes is to uphold an international norm, right? The prohibition against using chemical weapons. But there's another norm that I think is so much much more important, and that's the norm toward multilateral security, that you can't just go and attack another country with the exception of uh, self-defense or when working in concert with the international community. And I note in that piece that it's a violation of the UN Charter to even threaten to use force against another country except in those circumstances. So when Obama gave that speech in the Rose Garden about the importance of international law, he was flouting international law. Can you make? Any sense of this
13: no I can't I thought your piece was great about this you had this you you had this great comparison where where you said that the uh the 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 norm against chemical weapons which has been in which you know came out of World War one and the some um, you know one hundred and fifty thousand deaths there by uh by gassing was you know it's not that it's unimportant and that it doesn't establish an order that has benefited the world but the norm that came out of world war two which was the legitimacy of the international system and the u.n as the only legitimate venue for the use of force by states is a much more important international norm and in fact it's one that it's had a much greater impact on stability throughout the world and i yeah i mean i i think that's right on you can't it, it, it's really difficult to make any sense of it now, you know, there have been violations obviously of both those norms. That of been, course, there have been states that have used power that have used uh, military force outside of the UN. The US has done it several times, many of course. times, of course. And there have now been a, a handful of states that have used uh, chemical weapons. And you know, uh, let, let's take it, uh, let's just assume for the moment that you know, the, the basic contours of intelligence reports that have come out so far that Assad's government was, was, respons- was responsible for the chemical. Even if he didn't order it himself, you know the, the, these are these are repeated patterns, and I think that you know your argument is sort of right that these that you know not responding to the uh, the international norm uh, against chemical weapons is actually less important to world stability and kind of a broader, longer picture than being uh, uh, unresponsive to the international norm of the legitimate use of force through the UN Security Council.
7: And you know uh, the the the, um, the thing that. I keep hearing, I'm just switching tacks here a little bit, is about public opinion. As you noted, this is the least popular uh, proposed conflict for the last 20 years of Gallup polling or something like that. Um, there's really great a- opposition. The most recent poll out had 51% against, 36% for, and that's even, you know, uh, that those polls also presume that Assad uh, was in fact guilty, which I believe is is most likely the case. And
13: that's even polling on, on limited strikes. You know, that's we're not, not we're not talking about a broad intervention here. We're talking about the sort of limited thing that Obama has proposed.
7: Exactly. But one thing that kind of gets under my craw is that the pundits keep saying, "Well, Americans are war weary," and you know, I think, well, maybe we've been through a couple of uh, very complicated Middle East Middle Eastern conflicts with uh, sectarian as, um, aspects and very vicious, very hard to sort out maybe we've actually seen that the united states is extremely bad at uh nation building at governing once we've uh, achieved our narrow military objectives and maybe we've just learned some some valuable lessons from recent history rather than being just kind of exhausted
13: yeah i think it would be nice to uh change the terminology on that that like Feel like it's you know America has become war learned instead of war weary, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it's like you know the, the the idea of being war weary is like you know maybe we'll take a little disco nap and then when we wake up we'll be ready to wage massive wars in the Middle East again. <laughs> right. Like I think I think that uh, that era might be behind us, and it's and it's not because we're like tired of it, it's because we learned some freaking lessons. Swallow.
6: i have the final word on syria so let me explain what we should do now yes it's a very hard question we've struggled with it here at the young turks as a lot of people have across the country progressives are some are split on it as well some are obviously in favor uh... because they care about humanitarian concerns etc and some are against because they don't want to be in the middle of another war in the middle east that we got nothing to do with and by the way that is the clear majority to be clear it's not fifty fifty okay uh... well Here's what I think. I think that uh, it is a really important precedent that a country should not use chemical weapons. Yes, I understand our hypocrisy. Yes, I understand that we wouldn't attack Russia if they used chemical weapons. But I think it is important to have precedent, and that the fact that it hasn't been used in a hundred years, and we should keep it that way, or we should punish people who uh, use it, is a good precedent. Now, of course, Saddam Hussein used it, and we clearly sanctioned at the time because he was. Fighting Iran. So that's hypocrisy. But that doesn't mean we should be forever hypocritical. We can do better. But in order to take action, I think we have to do three things. One, we have to present clear and indisputable evidence that chemical weapons were used and that it was the Assad government who used chemical weapons. Now, right now, there's a lot of, oh, trust me, I mean, if you saw the evidence, no, 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 no. I went through that in the Iraq War. Don't tell me if I saw the evidence. Well, we live in a democracy. Show us the evidence. There's no reason to keep that. If the point of the evidence is to show you why it's so important, so clear that we take this dramatic action where we enter a a theater of war, and by the way, once we do bombings, they can retaliate and it can spin out of control. You've got to show it to us. You can't have our so called representatives, I know they don't often represent us, but they're technically called our representatives, vote on this without showing us the evidence. So, trust me, doesn't cut it at all. You must have indisputable evidence, and right now they have not presented that. So, I would vote no based on that. Number two, you must get congressional authorization. Now, I was very happy that President Obama decided to go in this direction. In the beginning, it looked like he wasn't going to. But he realized, by the way, one, it's the right thing to do, two, it's a constitutional thing to do, and three, by the way, and probably the real reason he did it, it's a smart political thing to do. If Congress denies him, he says, well, look, I tried, man, but those guys in Congress wouldn't do it. Can you believe them? Right? And if they do authorize it, then he can say, hey, listen, man, you signed on to it. It wasn't just me, it was all of Congress. Now, why do I care? Because there is a certain right way to do this. It's in our Constitution. Congress is supposed to approve acts of war. Uh, is bombing a different country hitting over fifty different military sites using tomahawk missiles and now apparently uh, s- uh bombers as well uh, act of war come on, you can call it anything you like, but, but that's a act of war there's no question about it. If it happened to us, we would certainly think it was an act of war by the way, it did happen to us Pearl Harbor, just a limited bombing with no boots on the ground, and we certainly thought that that was a A day of infamy that really required us getting into the middle of a world war. So, obviously, congressional authorization, if you care to do it right, is necessary. And you must do it right. And that's my main point here as I go on to the third point as well. There's a reason why you should do it right. And the third point is you must get UN authorization. Now, people say, oh, but the UN isn't going to authorize Russia and China are going to vote no on the Security Council. I understand that. But it isn't just to be a lawyer that you follow the laws. There's a reason why they're why they're there, why they exist, why we follow them. Because if a country has gone well outside of international law and they have done something egregious, well then the world reserves the right to act. But if the world does not agree, then apparently we cannot act because we do not stand together. You see, that has a purpose. If we don't stand together, we might wind up fighting one another. So if we decide well what they did is super egregious, but Russia doesn't agree and China doesn't agree and others don't agree, and by the way at this point Britain doesn't agree. Well, when we start an action and there's a counter re- uh, action to that, it can get really messy. Whereas if the United Nations agrees and we all act in concert, well then you can't Syria will have nowhere to turn. And it means that, yes, the world agrees we do not stand alone. We didn't name ourselves the uh, international cops and take action as if we run the world. We asked the world, and the world agreed. Okay, that's the right way to do it. Now, the final thing is people will say, well, then you won't act. Well, in the beginning, you're right. Okay, keep it real. I mean, this, it's, and it's not meant to be a cop-out. And, but I understand that, of course, that Russia and China will veto it in, uh, in the first place. But then President Obama and the United States of America can, can, can say, "Hey, listen, I'm ready to act. I got congressional authorization. I'm ready to push the button. So don't come tell me that I didn't act. I, I, I was here to help the people of Syria." Okay? Russia didn't act. China didn't act. It's blood on their hands. Okay? And then Assad might view that as a green light to use chemical weapons again. That's true. And then you take another vote at the UN. And at that point, Russia and China seem like they're even worse guys. And you present clear and indisputable evidence. Here are the children that were killed. Here are the 1,400 civilians that were killed. Russia and China, what are you going to do? Do you stand behind that dictator who's killing his own people, gassing his own people? Is that what you do? Maybe you lose that vote. Maybe one of them flips, but the other one doesn't. And then he perceives it as a green light, does it again. Yes, there are terrible consequences to this. But there is value in acting in unison and the world being united at some point russia and china will have enough pressure where they go okay I c- i can't continue to back this guy and if they do well then there are other consequences you can have n- non-lethal non-military responses maybe in the end russia stands alone and we do sanctions i know that seems extreme but it's you know what's more extreme a gigantic war There is a right way to do this, I believe we should take action, but only if we go through the proper channels, it's not to be a lawyer, it's to do the moral and correct thing. And so it can be done, but you've got to do it the right way. If you don't, you're going to get yourself and the whole world in much greater trouble.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, right at the end here, I just want to squeeze in today's activism call to action, which comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activism director Katie Klabusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, no war with Syria. Secretary of State John Kerry is leading the charge for what the administration is calling a limited engagement in Syria in response to the use of chemical weapons. The British Parliament has voted against military action, and while Russia is today urging Syria to put their chemical weapons under international control, it will veto strikes from their seat on the UN Security Council. This means the U.S. would essentially be on its own should it pursue an interventionist strategy in the ongoing Syrian civil war. Action is expected in Congress this week after being called back early from August recess to debate the administration's plan. Fire Dog Lake is continually updating the congressional whip count, which includes legislators on the record as yes or no, and those who are leaning in a direction. You can find your representatives there and get their contact information through contactingthecongress.org. We urge you to call, email, and tweet now while the debate is happening and so many are undecided. Then visit credoaction.com to sign the Do Not Bomb Syria petition, and Representative Alan Grayson's site, Don't Attack Syria.com to back his efforts from the House Foreign Affairs Committee to forego bombing yet another country in the Middle East. From Representative Grayson's petition, quote, The administration is considering intervention in the Syrian civil war. We oppose this. There's no vital national security involved. We are not the world's policeman nor its judge and jury. Our own needs in America are great and they come first. The death of civilians is always regrettable, and civil war is regrettable, but no Americans have been attacked, and no American allies have been attacked. The British Parliament understandably has voted not to join any attack. Notably, defense contractor Raytheon's stock is up 20% in the last 60 days. It seems that nobody wants U.S. intervention in Syria except the military-industrial complex. I oppose U.S. military intervention in Syria. Join me." The Credo petition similarly asks Congress not to authorize the use of force, instead emphasizing that aiding the more than 7 million displaced Syrians through the United Nations Refugee Agency is the crisis the U.S. should be involved in. As of this recording, there are just under 300,000 signatures between the two petitions. Add your name. More than 70% of Americans oppose intervention, and Congress should vote against it. Give them a reason to do just that. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. Visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities. Also remember that we encourage you to use your phone or other mobile device to record audio of your experience at any political event you attend to send in to be used on the show. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors owners to the show from bestofthelife.com.
4: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to miss them. We can't see past Stories and one